Welcome to another edition of Legends of Film. I'm William Chamberlain. Today, we have an interview with producer Paul Lazarus. Mr. Lazarus has produced such movies as Capricorn One, Barbarossa, Future World, and Westworld. Westworld will be shown Saturday, January 10th, 2015 at 2 p.m. at the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street. More later, on to the interview. What does a producer do? Well, the principal job of a producer is to find the money for a picture. Many producers walk away at that point, considering their job done. I, on the other hand, was what was called a creative producer, someone who stayed with the project all the way through until and then including marketing and provided two main results for a director. One was I would provide him an objective point of view on the work he was doing from the dailies on through to the finished picture. And the second is to keep the studio off the director's back and make the studio deal with me so that the director can worry about making the movie. We're going to be showing Westworld, and how did you and Michael Crichton come together to make Westworld? Well, Michael was my best friend. This was made in 73. He came to California as an author. I had read his books. And his literary agent in New York said, there are two people I want you to meet in California. One was John Calley, a very prominent executive turned ultimately producer. And the other was me. Uh, I was young. I was head of production for ABC Pictures. I think the fact that I had gone to good schools, Williams and Yale Law School, and had been for a brief time an agent in New York, preceded me. And he sought me out, and Michael and I became the closest of friends. As you were mentioning, keeping the studio off the director's back, Westworld was made at MGM, and at the time MGM had a bad reputation with major directors. How did you and Michael Crichton protect your film from interfering studio heads? We backed into MGM. Uh, Michael had a prominent agent at the time, Ashley Famous. I had no agent. And they submitted to all nine of the financing sources. Eight promptly turned it down. And MGM was the only one that took it. They took it because at the time, Kerkorian, who was the owner, had a $2 million five cap on what he would spend for a movie, and we were under that. So I was astounded because, to me, it was a wonderful Michael Crichton work, uh, the script. I asked him, why aren't you doing it as a book? And Michael replied, because it's visual. It is taken from people's sense of Westerns, and it's not really a book. So uh, we ended up at Metro. The critical person at the time was James T. Aubrey Jr., the president under Corian's chairmanship of Metro, and he's the one who was recutting people's pictures. Michael came into my office once we got it set up and said, they're not going to recut my picture. And I said, Michael, I can't get you final cut, which Kubrick had and others, but not certainly a first-time director. And he said, well, I have a plan. I said, what is it? 
He said, I'm going to camera cut the picture, which means giving no options whatsoever to the editor. And I said, Michael, <laughs> that's scary beyond belief. He said, I know how to do it. Well, Michael was the smartest person I had then ever met, and to this day I had ever met. And he did that. He camera cut the movie. We showed it to Aubrey and his minions in rough cut, and Aubrey said, don't worry, boys, I'll fix it in the cutting room. And the editor said, uh, Mr. Aubrey, sir, there's no other footage. He said, don't you dare talk to me that way. You're never going to work in this town again. And the editor said, sir, read the camera reports. This is all that Michael shot. So to everyone's astonishment, Aubrey couldn't touch the picture without reconstituting the cast and getting another director. So he went with Michael's cut, and wonderful irony that it was, it was the only film in the Aubrey regime that was profitable, the only one he couldn't recut. And obviously, as you know, he recut Peck and Paw and everybody else. Ed, your book produced by you were writing about the collaborative process, and you talk about how writers are not open to new ideas, but you said Michael Crichton seemed to be genuinely stimulated by new ideas. Could you give an example of this? It was mostly dialogue. With most writers, there are logic flaws that, you know, that's something I'm pretty good at, plugging it. But Michael's position was, again, just brilliant. If I initially, I had worked with Woody Allen before, also a comic genius, and, and I was working with Michael now, and I said to Michael, how are we going to deal with something where I'm concerned about what you've written? He took a breath and he said, look, if something bothers you and I wanted you on this project because I want to work with you, he said, either I'm on the wrong track with it or I'm on the right track and have executed it incorrectly. In either event, I'm not going to dissuade you from something that has bothered you. So let's talk about it, and I'll figure out which of those two options, and I'll fix it. That kind of utterly rational philosophy followed all the way through. When, when we would look at dailies or the cut of a picture or casting or any of the issues that I would work with them on, I had said to him, Michael, you know, it's your picture in the Hollywood sense that the director has his vision on the screen. I said, suppose we are in disagreement and we talk about it. How do you want to handle that? And Michael said, simply, he said, we will talk it through and decide who feels most strongly about the point in question, and we'll go with that. If you feel more strongly than I do, we'll go your way. If I feel more strongly than you, we'll go my way. It sounds so simple, but I have never heard it stated before, and it worked. I did a couple of films with Michael, and there was never an issue. We just sat down like two friends who are smart and worked it out. Could you discuss the origins to the follow-up to Westworld called Future World? Sure. Michael, in those days, certainly, and even more so today, where studios seek a franchise, Michael said, I'm on to other things. I don't want to have anything to do with the sequel, but I think MGM will come to you. He said, you have to be me. You have to create 
a vision that they will go with and then produce it. Well, that is precisely what happened. MGM said to me, we want to do a sequel. Michael said, I don't want any part of it. And they turned to me and they said, come to us with an idea. Come to us with the director and a writer and we'll make the sequel. So the idea that came in my head, which unfortunately wasn't executed very well on screen, was suppose in the successor resort to Delos in, in Westworld, it's now run by robots who are cloning world figures, making them into robots, and ultimately taking over everything. So they said, oh, that's great. And I found a writer. We ultimately found a director, Dick Heffron. And we had a script. We were ready to go, at which point MGM came to me and said, oh, we're only going to make one science fiction picture this year. We're going to make Soylent Green. So we'll give it back to you in what's called in Hollywood turnaround, which means I could take it to another studio. That studio would have to make its own deal with Metro that it paid for it so far, and then Studio B could make it. Well, it turned out to be Catch-22. I took this script. The whole town knew Westworld had been profitable, but the other studios all said the same thing. Why isn't Metro making it? There must be a hitch. Well, there was no hitch. I told them what they had told me. And finally, of all people, Jim Aubrey came to me and said, I can get it made for you. I said, Jim, if you can get it made, I'll split the emoluments for producer with you down the middle. Well, he got it made at AIP, where Arkoff, the surviving head of, of AIP, couldn't believe that Jim Aubrey was going to make a picture for him. So we got it done at AIP. They buried it. They had a Vincent Minnelli film with Liza that they couldn't unload. So they gave Future World to studios, uh, to theaters rather, that would book the Minnelli film. And it's not a very good picture, although there's some interesting performances. Stuart Margolin is wonderful in the movie. Peter Fonda is Peter Fonda. And I love Blythe Danner. I think she's always wonderful. Future World, like you were talking about, cast Peter Fonda and Blythe Danner as reporters. This was released in 1975 post-Watergate. And the movie seems to me an interesting mix of His Girl Friday plus all the president's men. Is this an accurate statement? Is this what you were going for? No. (laughs) We had none of those thoughts in mind. I was just trying to imagine what would the successor to Westworld be, and it had no political overtones whatsoever in, in its conception. In casting Westworld and Future World, you had Yul Brenner play the robot gunslinger. Was he your first choice for the role because of his work in The Magnificent Seven? He was a total surprise. Uh, I had a call from... ICM from Guy McElwain, his agent, who said, Yule needs money. He'll do your picture for $75,000. Yule was a star, certainly the biggest star in that movie. I said, does he know there's a line of dialogue, draw? He said, he needs the money. Well, MGM was thrilled that we had Yule Brenner on a low-budget picture for seventy-five k. So we were all happy. Yule wore his Magnificent Seven costume, as you can remember. And for Michael Crichton, 
it was wonderful because although he was a big star, he had nothing really to do, and Michael could spend his time with Dick Benjamin and Jim Brolin while I did the producer job of massaging Yule and keeping his ego inflated so that Michael could work with the actors who were in the movie the whole way. Westworld has had a major influence. James Cameron based the Terminator on the robot gunslinger. John Carpenter was inspired to create Michael Myers because of the robot gunslinger for his movie Halloween. Michael Crichton borrowed from Westworld to create Jurassic Park. And now, 41 years later after its release, HBO is going to do a TV show with this all-star cast. Um, Any thoughts or opinion on its lasting appeal and influence? Well, Aubrey's one comment when he brought Crichton and me in to talk about the script, uh, he had two comments. Uh, As the picture opens, Benjamin and Brolin are in the hovercraft, whatever it was, and the stewardess walks away and they look at her legs. Aubrey said, men don't look at women's legs. They only look at breasts. And we said, thank you, Jim. And then he said, and your robot has no personality at all. And at the time, MGM had a story editor named Saul David, a very smart guy who had come from book publishing in New York. So Michael and I went in to see Saul David and said, look, that's not who this robot is. It's not a three-dimensional character. And Saul looked at us and he said, forget what Aubrey said. Robots do two things. They serve mankind or they rebel against mankind. That's what they do. Leave it alone. (laughs) So from there, the interesting thing to me was Michael had written what the script called the robot point of view, which was to be that which is on 6 o'clock news every night, a pixelated version of, let's say, they're blotting out the news person's face because they want to keep that anonymous. So Michael had to, and I am the least technically proficient person in the world, Michael had to somehow come up with what would be a robot point of view. He hired the son of an experimental filmmaker, and this was done, believe it or not, on a giant Cray computer that we rented time on. The problem was Michael shot robot POV in 35 millimeter, at which point they had to feed it into the computer. Now it's all CGI, it's commonplace. Then it wasn't. Then what came out of the computer was either totally unintelligible or looked too much like out-of-focus 35-millimeter film. Ultimately, they came up with what is in that picture. So it became the very first film ever to use computer-generated imagery. Now, that was Michael working with an experimental filmmaker. We had, when we kept showing it to the studio or anyone else, seen missing cards almost to the time of release. It was not easy to get because no one had ever done it before. There was this movie I saw at a, it was at, I rented it at my local mom and pop shop video stores, a thing in the past in the eighties. And it was something you produced, but it, when I saw it, it had this lurid title called sex through windows, but the no, it, sex through a window. Yeah. That was extremely <laughs> close a, up. Yes, it was originally titled when Michael wrote it, Extreme Close-Up. And uh, briefly, 
who what opened in New York was a Danish picture called I Am Curious Yellow that had nudity. And it was an op-ed, oh, my God, this is changing cultures. We know it. What's a... And yet they were doing sellout business. It had no sex in it. It was essentially a nudist camp. And I said to Michael, we ought to be smart enough to figure out how to get some nudity on the screen without creating some kind of uproar that ruins people. So we sat down and figured out that story, which, as you remember, was local newscaster rents snooping devices at his local store, goes on television, talks about the horrors of uh, long lenses and directional mics, and then tries to return it to the store. The store is closed. He goes back to his apartment, looks across the courtyard, and oh, she's taking off her clothes. And his latent voyeurism becomes overt voyeurism. What we wanted to do, this was an era of grainy 8-millimeter, quote, stag films, where the sex scenes and the genitalia was so close to your eye that it had no sensuality, forget even sexuality. Our thinking was we could put what we wanted was nudity above the waist into a kind of action thriller format. And by definition, our voyeur was not going to be next to anything we showed on the screen. So there would be some distance and you would use your mind rather than be overwhelmed with close-up shots of genitalia. So I sold the picture, the concept, to um, a guy named Ted Manns, and it was announced in the trade that he was coming to L.A. to finance films. Well, he was an indie, he had no deals. I set up a date with him. And said to him, you've heard of Michael Crichton. Oh, of course I've heard of Michael And I said, what do you think Michael's screenplays get in the open market? He said, oh, 400 to 500,000. I said, that's absolutely right. Suppose I told you I had an original Michael Crichton script and I could make the whole picture for 209,000. And he said, well, what's the catch? I said, there is no catch. I'm offering you the bargain of a lifetime. He said, well, can I read it? I said, of course you can read it. He said, is it going to be dirty? I said, no, I will commit to no worse than an R rating. He took it home, he read it, came back the next day, and he said, you got a deal. So we made that movie, Extreme Close-Up, uh, which has its own set of stories, but that's not what you're calling about. But <laughs> we hired... Jeannot Swark, because he was French, and we thought, ah, French, he'll know how to do this. He was a television director, and because he was, he could get creditable actors who were doing series, who would work for scale to do a feature with him, because he'd hire them for the series that he was directing for Universal and around town. So we made that movie for 209000 Ted Mann set a distribution deal with National General that insisted on changing the title from Extreme Close-Up, which is a good title, to Sex Through a Window, which is an awful title. And then they went out of the distribution business, and the picture disappeared with hardly a trace. Michael took it off his filmography, and it is... I mean, I use it in my classes as an example of how you get an independent picture made. You somehow, if it isn't your family, 
work out something that makes it a deal for the money people. And this was a deal. He got what he wanted, a $209,000 picture with an original Michael Crichton script. You also produced a great Western called Barbarossa. And uh, what was the reasoning behind choosing Fred Shipsey as an Australian director to direct an American Western? Well, I had loved, as had Pauline Kael, The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, which was his first, no, his second film in Australia. He did, uh, I can't remember the title, but it was a story about parochial schools. Oh, the he Devil's went in, the, Yes, Devil's, Devil's Playground, Devil's That's something. it, Devil's Playground. Uh, I just thought two things. I thought that the violence in... Chan Jimmy Blacksmith was the opposite of peck and paw violence with blood spurting and so on. And as Bill Whitliff had written the script, it was incidental violence. It killed people. These were bullets, but it didn't preoccupy itself. And I liked the whole handling of Jimmy Blacksmith, which seemed to me to have overtones of an American Western. And this was an offbeat Western, to be sure. It was Whitliff called a mythic Western. And the role, it came to me with Willie Nelson attached, Gary Busey attached, and Bill Whitliff attached. So it was a matter of finding a director. And this was Skepsi's first American film, and just the beginning of the wave of prominent Australian talented directors and I thought it was a steal he was represented by Sam Cohn who I used to work for at ICM in New York a legendary now deceased agent and I was thrilled to get Skepsi um, and you know from there we hit inevitable obstacles we made it for uh, my ex-company Marvel Arch they went out of the distribution business. It went over to Universal, uh, and they hated it. They hated it because the two executives in the creative area were feuding. One of them, the junior one, loved Willie and was close to Willie. The other one, Ned Tannen, didn't like Willie, didn't like this picture, and they opted to bury it. I took a print and showed it to Sony Film Classics in New York, who said, oh, God, we love it. And I went back to Universal, which had a half million in it, because Lou Grade had paid for it, $10 million. And I said, uh, you guys have a half million dollars in your prints and ads. I'm going to get you 100 cents on the dollar. You can unload it, and Sony Film Classics will pick it up. And they said, we're not going to do that. I said, but you're going to dump the picture. And he said, well, suppose they make a hit. We'd rather write off a half million than be proven wrong. Well, you say that to a producer, it's their ball and bat, and there's not a damn thing I can do. So irony of ironies, it made all kinds of top ten lists for the year, and it's a picture that the world thinks, oh, yeah, I saw Barbarella, Jane Fonda, right? No, this is Barbarossa. <laughs> Well, I don't know anything about that. So it has become a cult picture that's mentioned in anyone wants to write a book about cult films that passed unnoticed in Hollywood. This is on that list.
Yeah, I have a book at home called Produced and Abandoned, the best films you've never seen, and there's a big right. write-up about Barbarossa in that. <laughs> it was great fun to make because Willie's a great person. Uh, I would steer as far away from Gary Busey as I possibly could for the rest of my life. <laughs> okay. Well, we won't go there. Uh, you produced uh, both Capricorn One and Hanover Street, which were both written and directed by Peter Himes. And could you discuss how you got co- this collaboration got started? Uh, again, I was fortunate in the sense that if I have a, um, a particular aptitude as a producer, it's working with material. And that's what Michael responded to and also I mean I got into this business because graduating from law school and seeing other bright friends head to Wall Street I'm nothing against making money I love to make money but I wanted my definition of a producer which is one foot in the creative camp and one foot in the business camp both Michael and Peter are fiercely bright they could if they wished get involved with the money people and allaying the anxieties of the studio, but they didn't. They wanted to make a movie. And they found with me somebody who was sympathetic to their problems, could help them in the solution of creative problems, and they could trust to take care of the business end. So Peter... I was playing tennis with, and he had just directed a film for Fox. I think it was called Fat Chance, which they deemed unreleasable. And that's the kiss of death. And then suddenly no one answers your phone calls. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know. I have these two scripts, and no one will even read it. I said, I'll read it. So he gave me Capricorn One. And I called him the next day. I said, Peter, this is terrific. And he said, yeah, fine. I'm represented by William Morris, and they can't even get anyone to read it. I said, let me try to get it made. So I knew that it couldn't get made in the American studios because Peter was ice cold. But off in England, Lou Grade, called in Hollywood at the time Lord Low Grade, because his movies were awful, I had a friend at ICM who was casting a lot of his movies, a guy named Jack Gillardi. And I called Jack and I said, how do I get to Lou Grade? And Jack was a friend, a former colleague. He said, I'll give you his private number. He gets in at six in the morning. His secretary doesn't get in until seven. Call him. So I said, okay. So I picked up the phone and called Lou Grade the next day. And I said, "Uh, sir, uh, Lou Grade, this is Paul Lazarus. Who? I said, I'm an American producer. Well, my plate is full, he said. I said, well, I have this incredible story about a NASA conspiracy. He said, "Uh, well, who do you have to direct? I said, Peter Hyams, he said. Never heard of him. I said, oh, thank God. He agreed to meet with Peter and me in New York. We flew him to New York. Classically, the agency said, make them give you the ticket first. Peter said, my agent said, we've got to get paid for the ticket first. I said, Peter, whatever his movies are, no one has ever said he's a welcher. If he's flying us to New York, you'll get your money. Take the chance. You're sitting on your butt. No one's answering your calls. So we flew in, 
<laughs> Lou met us at some prominent hotel. He was wearing a silk bathrobe. He smoked Churchillian cigars as big as a baseball bat. And he had the whitest legs I'd ever seen. This man had never been outdoors. Uh, <laughs> he met us for a minute or two and said, wonderful boys, it's a deal. And I walked up Peterson, what just happened? I said, I'm not sure, I'll follow up. And sure enough, it was a deal. They optioned it because the way Lou Grade worked was he put a cast together and then pre-sell it foreign to collect enough to make the movie. So <laughs> Peter did with me a rewrite where in my book, I think I probably said he used to hate me coming in with these yellow pads with my notes, but he obliged them. And ultimately, we were to fly to London to meet Lou Grade for his comments. We still hadn't gotten a go on the picture. And Peter's plane was delayed. We were coming from separate places. So I said, called him, I said, I'll take the first meeting, and if we have problems, then we'll both go in. I go in to see Lou Grade, and he said, there's too much crawling around the desert. I said, what do you mean, Lou? He said, crawling around the desert. I said, Lou, that's one page where Jim Rowland is in a sandstock. He said, oh, okay, it's fine. So <laughs> we got to go, and ultimately it was awfully close, and we had lined up all the people, but he still didn't have a go. And we were pushing for Donald Pleasance to play the part that Telly Savalas played. We both loved Pleasance. And he said, no, I want Telly Savalas. Well, he was a joke, as you said. He was Kojak. He was a joke. And I said to him, Lou, talk to me. What's going on here? He said, I can get an additional half million dollars for NBC if you put Telly Savalas in it. I said, deal. Just tell me the truth. We can work together. So as it turned out, I think, Telly Savalas brought a whole sense of life to the last portion of the picture, which Donald Pleasance would never have done. And uh, they left us alone. Uh, they never oversaw the picture. We were the children making a movie at half the price of what Lou's pictures had cost previously. And it became a profitable picture. Hanover Street was the second script that Peter had in his trunk. Lou's partner on Capricorn One was General Cinema out of Boston, which owned movie theaters and Pepsi-Cola bottling plants. And Lou didn't want to make a love story because they don't work very well or didn't work very well in Europe. And General Cinema stepped up and said, we'll make it. So we had a second picture. And uh, it, too, was fraught with problems. General Cinema did not want Harrison Ford. They had canvassed their theaters, and although people knew Han Solo, they didn't know Harrison Ford's name. So we set it up originally with Chris Christopherson, who they wanted, and Chris was also represented by William Morris, where Peter was represented. And at one point, uh, the head of the Morris office picture department called, I can't even remember her name, but a Canadian actress, I can't think of her name for the moment, who we didn't want at all, but 
they gave us the classic agents thing. Well, you know, Chris has a lot of offers. He wants this girl. And so long story short, um, Christopherson backs out of the picture and he's going to be liable. I've got contracts and so on. And I went to General Cinema and they said, who do you want? I had Brolin. Brolin had read the script and he'd done Westworld with me and I knew if I could get them to back into Brolin, we had a movie. So I said, well, you know, we'd always wanted Harrison Ford, and, I, and Jim Brolin would be our second choice. So they said, they called me back. They said, we're in pre-production. They said, how deep are you in? I said, $5 million. And you're saying that Christopherson is liable? I said, absolutely. He breached the contract. I've got a signed contract. I said, okay. And they Chairman called me back, Richard Smith, the next day and said, we'll go with Harrison Ford. So Peter flew over to the Isle of Man where he was shooting a picture, and Harrison said, all right, I'll do it. And then, God, I can't think of the English girl's name, or the Canadian girl's name, but I made a deal with Leslie Ann Down, who was shooting a Crichton picture, a great train robbery in Ireland, and we ended up making Hanover Street which although it got absolutely killed by the critics, I really don't think it was that bad a movie. Uh, certainly not on the worst list of films from that year, but it, it, that's how it ended up. You are now a professor of cinema and interactive media at the University of Miami, and what made you leave producing to become a teacher? Well... The last studio job I had was head of production for HBO's feature film arm and uh, a couple of things. I didn't like my boss, uh, which is not uncommon in many jobs. Uh, I just didn't like him. And at one point he said to me, you live at the beach. I said, yes, I do. He said, would you mind going by Riviera Country Club, which is on the way to the beach? And I've charged a set of golf clubs to the movie we're making, and would you pick them up for me? Well, this was like 20 minutes from our office at Century City. And I don't like, I don't know a really good word for it other than theft. He was doing something that's not right. He was charging to the movie his set of golf clubs. And I said, with all due respect, I just don't want to do that. I said, you know, you can do what you want. You're running this company. And he said, I'm asking you as a favor to pick up the golf clubs. I said, respectfully, I don't want to. Well, I got fired for that. And I said to uh, my wife at the time, you know, let's get out of here. I don't like this anymore. So we moved to New Mexico. The governor heard I was coming and asked me to be the film commissioner for the state, which is someone who tries to attract, for economic benefit reasons, productions to New Mexico as opposed to Texas or any of the other southwestern states. I did it for a couple of years. I increased the cash flow 400% to the state of New Mexico. And I felt my brain was turning to cornflakes. I was just not challenged. And my wife said, do you want to go back to L.A.? I said, not a lot. 
And she said, the happiest I've ever seen you was when you were teaching adjunct courses for UCLA. I said, you know, that's not a bad idea. So I asked around, was told about how you find jobs. I sent out a couple of letters to be um, presidents of universities, which is ridiculous. But I thought, gee, I've raised a lot of money in my life. Isn't that what presidents of universities do? to be chairs of movie departments, and to be deans of schools of communication. Again, waving my Yale Law degree, thinking that will maybe establish some kind of bona fides. And I think the letters applying for presidency were returned, not even opened, and ended up with an offer to be dean of the School of Communication at Boston University and chair of the film department at the University of Miami in a School of Communication that was just starting. I thought we were going to go to Boston, but the then president of BU was a crazy person, and people said to me, you don't want to report to a crazy person. Whereas the dean of University of Miami's new School of Communication was a guy named Ed Fister, who was formerly the chairman of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a really smart, really nice man, and I ran that program for 19 years and then stepped aside to become just a professor. So we've now been here nearly 30 years, and obviously it took. I, I turned down situations to become an administrator and stayed instead in the classroom where I've been happy ever since. I would like to thank Paul Lazarus for doing the interview. Remember, come to the Downtown Public Library on 615 Church Street to see Westworld on Saturday, January 10th, 2015 at 2 p.m. Today's music is The Main Theme to Capricorn One by Jerry Goldsmith.